That is by far the best preaching Josh has ever done here <laughs> in this church. So I, I say it's, it's worth it, and uh, God can use anybody. So thank you, Josh. Uh, this is uh, a really wonderful day to celebrate, and in light of these beautiful things that we're sharing, uh, now we get to start talking about sexual ethics in Leviticus. Um, <laughs> Seems a little bit like we're taking a sharp turn here, but uh, that's what we're going to do. I do want, before we get going, and I don't see him in here, but I just wanted to add my voice uh, to uh, congratulate Paul on winning that competition with the chili. Is he not in here? He's not here? Oh, man. Well, too too bad. Well, tell him him we all just want to tell him. (laughs) He, He... he deserved it, and uh, nobody can ever take this away from him, so I just want to congratulate him. I am glad that somebody caught a picture of Lori in her costume. Uh, it was like a big, Bigfoot spotting. She was in it so short. Won the whole competition, just passed through the yard, I think, wearing it, so uh, good job with the camera there. Um, it's fun to be with you guys last night. Uh, a couple things I want to mention real quickly. I, I meant to say this a long time ago. I even asked Terry to mention it last week, but I think he forgot. Uh, But uh, we've been doing readings uh, each week, and some of you have probably figured this out, but we've been reading Psalm 119, and it's basically the whole psalm, longest chapter in the Bible, but it's broken up into these sections that are basically thanking God for the law, centered on the goodness of the law, those kind of things, and that seemed appropriate to do as we're going through the law, we're reading Leviticus, so... We're, we're highlighting that as we go. Rather than just leading, reading portions of Leviticus, we're doing that. So, so just to let you know that's happening. And then, because Leviticus and the book of Hebrews are so connected, we're just taking selections from the book of Hebrews as we go and, and reading that as well. So hopefully that can just be some, uh, a field of play for you to, to be exercising your mind as we're studying Leviticus, connecting it with other parts of Scripture. So that's what's happening there. I want to say uh, thank you to those who have, especially Kendall and Victoria, have arranged for our kids to have some papers to, to work on during the service uh, to help them to engage and maybe draw more out of our, our sermons. And if you're not familiar with, with that, uh, please uh, see them and they'll get you hooked up with the papers where you can, you can write things down and, and afterwards they are giving away money if you fill those out. So please go to them and they will richly rewards you, I think. Um, so I, I don't know the details, but just ask them for money if you fill out those papers. Um, let me open us in prayer. Thank you, Lord, so much for the great things that you have done for us and uh, that you have chosen to descend and reveal yourself to us so that we can know you. And may we know you better even now through the study of Leviticus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to very briefly remind you of the structure of Leviticus. This is the way uh, Michael Morales in his book on Leviticus uh, arranges it. Maybe it could be arranged in other ways. I put this up here before, but I'm just reminding you. uh, Kind of ascending towards the Day of Atonement, actually putting Leviticus 16 at the center of the Pentateuch, uh, the entire first five books of the Old Testament. And uh, so we've, we've hit uh, chapter 16, and, then, and now we're coming back on the other side of the, the pyramid. If you, can, if you can read that, it's small to me, it may be small to you. But uh, the first 16 chapters or so are called the Levitical Code, dealing more with priestly purification type issues. And then the second half, or, or however it divides up, uh, 17 on down through the rest of the book, 
you're dealing with what's called the holiness code, where you get into more of interpersonal type relationships. And of course, the, this, this writer who put this together sees parallels, even if they're going to touch on some different things, he sees parallels in, the, in terms of the, the thematic approach, sanctuary laws, priestly laws, and personal laws. And today we're getting into those personal laws, but specifically uh, focusing on the, the sexual ethics that are given to us in Leviticus. It uh, is uh, these, these three chapters here, 17, uh, I mean 18, 19, and 20, uh, 18 and 20 largely parallel, uh, focusing on sexual ethics and idolatry. And then chapter 19 is a more positive expression of, of uh, loving our neighbors, living in uh, right relationships with neighbors around us. And that's going to be covered over the next today and the next three weeks we're going to cover all of this. Uh, but chapters 18 and 20 kind of bracket chapter 19 in the parallel. So uh, we have to talk about sexual ethics. And I understand, especially for certain people, given your background, maybe your age range, whatever, this is awkward. And I, I get that. But we need to talk openly about these things. It's biblical. God doesn't seem to be ashamed of talking about it. We don't need to be vulgar. We don't need to be graphic, explicit, disrespectful. But we need to talk about these things because they are really important. In fact, we live in a very ironic context now in our world where our world increasingly, blatantly, puts sexual things in front of us everywhere. TV, movies, billboards, commercials, books, classrooms, hallways. It is unavoidable. You can't keep your kids isolated from it for too long. They're going to run into to certain things. Hopefully you can keep them from graphic and, and vulgar things, but... The, the stuff is out there, and it's being pressed upon us from all kinds of angles. The irony is that at the same time that has happened, we are increasingly, or maybe not increasingly, but consistently afraid to talk about it openly in the church. We feel awkward, maybe ashamed, to talk about these things in the church. Now that to me sounds like a satanic strategy. Let's get people to see this stuff everywhere. Let's force it before their eyes and their minds constantly. And let's make them think they can never talk about it with the people of God. Seems like creating an unsolvable problem. Let's tempt people in every way we possibly can. And let's make them think they can never acknowledge that they are tempted. Let's make them think that the temptation itself is a sin and they should be ashamed to even talk about it. See how that's an unsolvable problem? And so we have this stuff just poured out upon us. And we're not able to deal with it with the people who can help us deal with it, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, we're ashamed to mention that we are sexual beings. God doesn't seem to be ashamed of that. The Bible doesn't seem to be afraid to talk about that. And I'm going to try to do it respectfully and aware of the, the difficulties. I, guys, i got to tell you, my background, is this is not natural to me. And it's somewhat maybe a southern thing, somewhat a family thing. I remember when I first started going to Olivia's house, and there were four ladies in that house, and Cole, and I realized they talked about things that I didn't talk about <laughs> in my family. And uh, different people are different. But uh, I've, I've told you before, uh, when, when I talked about lust a couple of years ago, I told you the story, I'll tell you again. Uh, when I was like fifth or sixth grade, I went to a Christian school, 
a Christian school where I thought I was one of the only Christians, at least one of the only right Christians. And uh, so you'll understand where I'm coming from with this. And they had a sex education class in that school. And uh, they talked about how sex is for one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. And I got out of that class, and I was walking to the water fountain with this really, really smart kid in, in the class. And we were friends. And, and uh, I wanted to tell him what I knew. And I said, you know, his name was Jason. Jason, um, we believe that sex is wrong even after marriage. <laughs> you know, you know. And this sharp guy looked at me and he said, how do you think you got here? <laughs> With God, all things are possible. You've got to be committed. You've got to be committed. And then you'll find how he answers. Um, that was the beginning of my starting to wonder, okay, maybe I haven't got the full story here. And uh, eventually I figured out that I had not gotten the full story. My brother Brad said he wanted to tell that story at my wedding rehearsal, but he couldn't do it in front of my grandma. <laughs> and uh, man, my grandma, she would not be happy with my sermon today that I'm saying these things openly before you. She's 98. I'm glad she doesn't know about the internet. Uh, so uh, she'll never see this. And that's why I can do this in good conscience. <laughs> so we got to talk openly. I'm going to say the word sex. We don't need to be embarrassed. We don't need to giggle it away. We need to talk openly about this so that we can deal with the problem because our world is sexually broken. And people are dying. People's lives are shriveling up. Society has been so deeply negatively influenced because we are messed up when it comes to our understanding of sex. And it goes much deeper than we sometimes realize. It's not just, oh, this is wrong and that is wrong. It's a problem at the fundamental level. There's a network of beliefs starting with dismissing God from our consciousness. This is what the Apostle Paul identifies in Romans chapter 1. We don't have time to get into it today, but go read it. Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about how the world devolved into sin. And specifically, he mentions sexual sin. But he says in that context, he says, They did not like, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. So God gave them up to all kinds of wickedness. That's where it starts. It starts with us not wanting to retain God in our knowledge, us wanting to live as if there is no God. And then the human mind is incredibly versatile in its ability to find ways to justify what we want to do apart from God. What we want to say for Christians is that we're proclaiming something good. Have you heard of Victorian ethics? I think Victorian era ethics is something like connected with, this is going to be an oversimplification, but connected with uh, being proper, having good manners, those kinds of things. Maybe an external kind of, of you know, watch Pride and Prejudice or read it, you know, the, the kind of uh, we know how to sit and how to talk and what to say at the right times, so what to do, you know, and kind of hide things behind the scenes. I, I bring it up because E. Stanley Jones has this, this good line where he says that we as a church, we don't preach Victorian ethics. We preach victorious ethics. And that's what we want to point people towards. It's not minding your manners, getting the rules right, uh, driving your desires way, way, way back, or hiding your desires so that others don't see them. It is living victoriously in the power of Jesus. That's what we proclaim. 
And when we talk about sex, we want to talk about victorious living. And we live now in a time of unprecedented instability around these kinds of issues. It's been called, our time period has been called the third wave of the sexual revolution, where not only now are people saying you can do all kinds of stuff, which has happened down through the centuries, but people are saying all these kinds of things should be justified as good. And you're not only morally uh, too strict on yourself, you're morally wrong. You're a bad guy if you're standing against some of these kind of things. This is where we are in our society now. You know, we tend to get upset about homosexuality and transgenderism. We're going to talk about homosexuality in two weeks. And I'm going to just devote a whole, whole talk to that then. We're not getting to that today. We tend to focus there and to really hammer on that issue. And we don't realize that it's connected to a much larger and deeper sexual problem in our society that goes back to us defying God and what he has given us regarding the human marriage and human families. And so we accept divorce. And I understand that, that many people have suffered from divorce. And let me just say this about all of this. I, I want to say this. Side note, I'm getting, getting off here. I'll come back. When we talk about sexual sin, there can be a lot of shame and a lot of guilt. And I want to tell you there is forgiveness in Christ. And probably every adult in this room could go back to something that they feel bad about in their past. If we were to really get to uh, exploring things deeply with each other. Look, we, we are forgiven in Christ. So you don't sit around and beat yourself up over these things. The question is, what are we going to do now going forward? I'm not saying any of this so you'll go away feeling shame. All of us have things we would regret. Say, man, I could have done that differently. Maybe some things we've done really bad. There may need to, there may, it may be that you, you need to confess sin to someone so that you can really feel the forgiveness of God. Think about that. But move forward serving him. Don't get hung up on your past, right? And same thing I, I say about divorce, right? We live in a culture that's told us, go out and get divorced, whatever you want to. Today, couples uncouple. You hear that term? Oh, we've decided to amicably, amicably uncouple. How about this? We have decided to destroy what God said never destroy. We have decided to break apart what God had joined together. That's not amicably uncoupling, guys. And there's a culture around us that's telling us, yeah, that's fine. What, y'all just kind of grown apart? Okay. We have decided that young people really can't control themselves. Estimated 55% of teenagers are having sex before they're 18 now. 55%. Couples just living together. Oh, you should do that. You know, have a trial period. Live together first. And we got to say, do we believe the scriptures? Does God have something to say about all of this? And should we pay attention to it? We've got to try to understand not just is there a biblical rule about this, but is there a biblical vision for human life that's contained for us in the Scriptures? Because our world, rampant pornography, staggering percentages of adultery, 
and a world that says, well, we should kind of look the other way. Is there a way to be better? Can we identify this as broken and say we are going to follow a different pathway? Theologian Tim Tennant has argued that this sexual brokenness is happening because we have not gotten to the root of the problem. And so from the outside, at least it looks to, maybe from the inside a lot of times, it looks as if we, Christians are going around trying to put out fires. Well, we're against homosexuality, we're against transgenderism, we're against adultery, and all these things we're against. And we haven't, according to Tennant, we haven't identified what we're for. So let me tell you what we're for. This may not be exactly the way uh, Tennant would say. I'm still reading his book. But, but I'm going to tell you what we're for. Right? We are for human flourishing in relationship with God. We are for the human family thriving. We are for children having stable homes. We are for families created that create, create virtuous people who become virtuous citizens of society and represent Christ in the world. We are for families that create, can create love and trust and pour out goodness. We are for parents loving children and children loving parents. We are for, for siblings loving each other. By the way, I just want to stop right here and say something to uh, especially the younger ones in here today. I'm thinking about this because just yesterday, Sydney brought this up in our house and talked about how at school uh, she'll be with, with kids and they act like they hate their younger siblings. And, and somehow that, that is sometimes thought to be cool with, with kids. And I want to say this to you, uh, to all of you who have siblings. Love your siblings. I understand they can be annoying, okay? I had two brothers. They were both annoying. I wasn't, but they were. And, uh, but man, I had a gift because my older brother, as we got older, somehow he rose above what's typical for older brothers, and he loved me. And um, made a huge difference in my life. And I want you siblings to know that uh, you can make a difference for your siblings. And in Christ, we're not just getting by. We're, we're becoming families that reflect the power and goodness of God. And you guys can do that. Seek it by God's grace. This is what we're for. We're for human thriving and flourishing. Okay, let's look at Leviticus. We're not going to take a long time with this. That's a long intro, and so we're going to go short. And Josh took forever with his stuff. So... Um, <laughs> Uh, this is Leviticus 18 and 20, but I want to start just with this kind of summary verse here in, in chapter 18. This will tell you what, what chapter 18 is about. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. And that's a, that's a euphemism there for having sexual relations. Basically, this is, this is against incest. And it just goes through it and names off a lot of incestual relationships, and then a few others. And I've just chosen some examples. We're not even looking at all of them here. This is what's forbidden. And some of this will seem very, very obvious to us, of course. And we'll, we'll understand how broken and messed up something is when this is not observed. Parents and children, step-parents and step-children, siblings and half-siblings, grandparents and grandchildren. Of course, these things should be off-limits, right? Adultery, homosexuality bestiality, 
But let's pause and just ask if we can explore a little bit further why these things would be ruled out. And I'll give you just two or three reasons here. One is that, uh, and this may be a part of the reasoning here, is that, that some of these practices would be associated with pagans and maybe even uh, connected with pagan worship, idolatry and sexual sin. And uh, uh, for that reason, there could be, you know, just like in other ways, the line may be drawn to, to put, a, put a barrier between us and the pagans. But I don't think it's just that. I don't think that, uh, you know, sometimes we may have laws that are just there to distinguish. But, you know, the Canaanites probably had breakfast too, and God didn't say don't eat breakfast because you're not a Canaanite. So we want to think about what other reasons may be involved uh, in this. And, and one of those things is going to be just establishing a foundation for social morality. And that's what we're getting into in these chapters 18, 19, and 20. It's just a foundation for people treating each other the way that people should treat each other. And the family is central to society. Families break down and societies break down. And so you want to form families who can respect each other, particularly right here talking about the sexual relationship. Some things, just some boundaries don't need to be crossed. And that can be destabilizing. Here's the way one scholar puts it in, in talking about these rules. Uh, they are given to protect the roles and identity of each family member within the household so that illicit sexual relations do not lead to the breakdown of mutual trust and love. Right? These laws are given to protect people. And we don't cross certain sexual boundaries because if we do, that's going to break the relationships down. People aren't going to be able to function the way they should function. And love and trust is going to suffer. Free exercise of our sexual desires could destroy a family and it could destroy a society. So God says don't do it. You see, to think along those lines is to think that the family matters. And you may have a hard time convincing people, of some people at least today, that the human family really does matter and it should be cherished and protected. And, you know, families hurt us so much. And sometimes all people want to do is escape and get away. And, and sometimes that may be the best that can be done. But let's just say clearly that's not God's design. God gave us families. And those families are meant to help us flourish in his world. God's design is for human beings to be secured in love within wider kinship units. And if you've experienced, so many people have broken, messed up families, so I'm sorry for you if you do, but if you experienced the goodness of a wider family unit that cares for you, if you've had grandparents and aunts and uncles who really care for you, then you know what a gift it is from God to have that. So I want to go back, after talking about the reasons for this, I just want to go back and talk about uh, look at the opening chapter, opening paragraph in this chapter 18. And that's really where we're going to focus our attention for the rest of our time. In chapter, uh, chapter 18, verse 1. And we're going to draw out a few, a few important points here about the, the why, the foundation for these ethics. Chapter 18, verse 1 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. And if you look down at verse 4, it says again, you should follow my rules. I am the Lord your God. Verse 5, you shall keep my statutes. I am the Lord. Let me say to you that the starting place for Christian ethics, the starting place when Christians want to talk about sex is God is God. He is the Lord. And our attention is on him when we're thinking about how to live our lives. We cannot come at this as if we're out of here on our own trying to figure it out, make some smarter arguments than these people over there. No, we're starting with a God who reveals himself. And like I said, doesn't just give us rules, but gives us a vision for what life can be. And this is where we ground ourselves in the godness of God, in, in his supremacy and authority. Starting place for Christian ethics is not some kind of abstract theory. What's the best for the most people? How can I bring about the most good for the most people? That's not it. The starting place for us is a covenant relationship with the living God. And how do we live in that relationship with him? Remember, these, these instructions in, are pictured here in, in, in Leviticus as happening at the foot of Mount Sinai. They have come out of Egypt. They were slaves. They didn't have any hope. They didn't know how ever, they were ever going to get out of there. And then guess what? The Lord showed up and gave them his name. I am the Lord, Yahweh. And I'm going to rescue you from slavery. And God walked right into Pharaoh's Egypt and all the gods of Egypt. And so to speak, he slapped them in the face and said, hey, your time's up. Now I'm taking my people out of here. And they come out of that. And they're at the foot of the, Mount Sinai. And that mountain shakes and quakes. And God says, I'm going to teach you how to live now. And not only am I going to teach you how to live, I'm going to live among you. You're going to build a tabernacle, and my presence is going to be there. You know what the appropriate response to that revelation is? Okay, what do you want me to do? How should I live now that this God has rescued me? This God, the most powerful God, the God who can defy Pharaoh, and Pharaoh can't do anything about it. How do I live now? If we're going to embrace a distinctive ethic, and that's what we're doing as Christians, our society is not in on this, guys. And there are, there are reasons for that. We have lost the vision as a society in this area. If we're going to be distinct like this in our ethics, we're going to have to have a distinct relationship with God. We're going to have to know who we are. We can't just have a morality without having an identity. Our identity is we are God's people. It says, I am the Lord, you're God. And we need to place some emphasis on the your God. He has chosen us. We are his. And from that place of being the Lord's, we say we can be a different kind of people because we have a different kind of God. He's not a God like the gods of Egypt. In fact, there is none like him. That is holiness. He is separate and apart from everything, from every God, lowercase g, that has ever tried to claim the throne that is not God. That is not the Lord. Our God is God. And from a place of worship before him, we say we can live differently, no matter how many people may say otherwise. I'm afraid we don't recognize what a great opportunity 
You know, we, 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 we are given this morality sometimes, separate from our identity, and that leads us to not realize our opportunity. And we say, well, you don't understand. My life's hard, and I've got to get what I can get while I can get it. No, no, no. You don't understand the opportunity that's being given to you to be a holy child of God. A.W. Tozer, I was just reading this this week. I read his book every year on the pursuit of God, and, and these lines struck me. The presence of God is the central fact of Christianity. At the heart of the Christian message is God himself waiting for his redeemed children to push in to conscious awareness of his presence. This is the place from which we live out ethics. At the heart of our faith is God and living in his presence. And that's from the place we can joyfully, Dallas Willard says we, we, uh, he, he recommends joyful non-cooperation with evil. <laughs> I love that phrase, joyful non-cooperation with evil. We just don't cooperate. People say, oh, that's just normal. That's just what kids do. That's just what you do. You got to do it. You got to live right. No, <laughs> I've got a joy you don't understand. I've got a joy with the Lord Jesus in my life. And so I'm not going to cooperate with that. I'm just going to live differently than that. Malcolm Muggeridge had this line. He had such a way with words. He said, sex is the mysticism of materialism. You've got to think about that. Uh, materialism, the, the idea that this world is all there is. All there is is matter. And he said, basically, what we're doing is we're worshiping sex then. You get a world without God. And, but you're still made for something that's be bigger and better than just normal human life or, or, or what might be considered human life. You're made for something more, right? And so we mystify sex. We make it out like it can solve all life's problems, like it can be the place of transcendence. But that's a mysticism that only applies to someone who's a materialist, <laughs> someone who thinks that they don't have God, they just have this world. And then they try to suck some kind of meaning out of sex. And that is an empty well. And people have pursued it and come to the place that we find the, the statement in the book of Ecclesiastes when the writer said, I sought to satisfy my heart with all kinds of pleasure. Vanity of vanities. <laughs> meaningless. Meaningless is all meaningless. And some of you, I'm sure, could testify you've been down that road. I know you could. You can say, I tried that. And I was left empty and I was left looking for something else. We are here to proclaim the something else today. You know that? That's what we do every week, hopefully. We proclaim there's something else, there's something more, and you can be in on it. Praise God. Just to look at a few more of these passages here, these verses here. Uh, I am the Lord your God, verse 3, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt. Where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. That's the land that bordered them, bordered them on each side, Egypt and Canaan. You shall not walk in their statutes. These countries, not, as far as we know, they weren't notably wicked compared to other countries. They just didn't know the Lord God. They didn't know how to walk in his ways. And God's people needed to be told explicitly, when you look for how to live your life, you don't look around you so to speak. Mm -hmm. You look up to heaven. 
You look up that mountain where you saw Moses come walking down with the tablets. And you know that God has spoken to you. That's where you, you don't look around you. And guys, we got to say, the people of God have always been a distinct people. They have a distinct identity, a distinct ethic, and today it's still true. We are a distinct people too. And we're called to a distinct lifestyle. And you'll be laughed in many contexts in our world today, large swaths of our culture today, you'll be laughed out of the room if you say uh, a 20-something-year-old should not be sleeping with his girlfriend. Ha <laughs> ha, who, who believes that kind of outdated, silly stuff today? And what we say is, and we believe we can make a reasoned case for this, not just the Bible rule says it, we believe that kind of life is not the kind that leads to flourishing. It's not the kind that leads to human joy and goodness, human thriving. And so we're for something else. We're for something better than that. Okay, I want to get to the final, final bit here. Verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And this is where we want to finish up today. The law is put before the people of God, not as a burden to carry, but as a blessing to receive. To learn both duty and delight in the ways of God. And what we want to say is when we preach these things in the church, is we're doing it out of compassion. Because people are destroying their lives. And they're saddled with relational brokenness with inner, inner pain that they carry throughout their lives. Children are, are placed in contexts that are not conducive to their stable growth and well-being. Lives are being destroyed because we have placed human desire on the throne instead of God. And if we learn these things, we can live by them. Not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. Learning to live, that's what we're preaching to people. Do you want life? Come in and get life. Get it with God. We've got we to gotta be clear about this. The commands of God, this is what we see. Listen to Psalm 119 as we read it week after week. The commands of God bring life. Probably nowhere in our world is this challenged more than the arena of sex. And... Uh, Maybe we can just pause here to include romance, too. Now, I'm not knocking all romance, okay? Um, but, but the vision of life. This is what concerns me, is the vision of life, the sexual romantic vision. It is a temptation that Christians will believe this. We talk about this with our girls uh, in our home. We watch movies sometimes. And I, I was telling someone recently, maybe we've been having some discussions recently about this as a family, but, uh, uh, you know, sometimes we're really worried about bad words on TV. I'm not so worried about that, honestly. I mean, I'm not saying go put a bunch of filthiness in front of your, your kids, but, but I am more concerned with what might capture their hearts. And my kids have heard some bad words on TV, and they aren't very tempted to say them, as far as I know. <laughs> I don't think that's, that's much of their issue. But, but what concerns me is when a vision of life is put forth in a Disney movie, 
that says you can find life and goodness and joy if you'll just find the right person. And everything will line up and your life will be great because that's what's really good. And that kind of romantic vision, you know, obviously Disney isn't talking about sexual stuff usually. Maybe now. I mean, everything's talking about it now. But, but the, the idea is that you get the right romantic sexual relationship in place and then you'll have life. That's the danger for me in the church is people believing that kind of nonsense. That takes our hearts away from God. Life is in God. Real life, good life, flourishing life is in God. And he sent his son into the world to make it so clear to us that there's real life with him. So brothers and sisters, I'm going to say it plainly, reject the stupidity that is all around you and claim your inheritance as a child of God. This is what we are invited into. Let me conclude with the words in chapter 20. Verse 26. And we may say this is the theme of Hebrews, I mean of Leviticus. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. I want you to remember who you are, my dear brothers and sisters. And remember that you have such a high calling. God is good. He invites you into the goodness of life with him. I talk to you, every so often I talk to you about my neighbor, Miss Ruby. Who was a bright, bright light of Christ. Eden is named Eden Ruby after her. And she impacted our lives just by her presence, old old woman, but she knew Jesus, and um, I can't remember the details right now, but maybe I asked her about her marriage and what made a good marriage, something like that, and, and she told me that she and Carl, Carl had been dead for a while when I, when I knew her, but uh, that she and Carl talked early on, and they said very clearly to each other that Jesus is going to be first in their relationship. And nothing's going to come between that. And then he passed away and she lived on a joyful life for Christ. And I want to tell you that what Miss Ruby had, it's what everybody's looking for. It's what Brad and Angelina wish they could find. It really is. They'll never tell you that. They don't even know it. But it's what they wish they could find. Everybody's looking for it. You can have it because life is in God. Amen. Praise team, come on up, please.